um, ha- have you all ever been asked like a really big, really significant question? Like questions like, what is grace? What, what is God all about? What is the meaning of life? What is the kingdom of God? What, what is that? What is things like love and judgment? And what are the problems of the world? These, these huge, massive questions. And for many of us, if we were asked like, okay, what is grace? How, how would we respond to that? We, we would typically give probably like a very practical Webster's Dictionary definition, right? It is like um, self-sacrifice for the sake of the other or affections or something. We'd give a very linear boxed definition of what that looks like. It's detailed sometimes, nuanced, um, it's clear in some ways, but also straightforward. It's often how we, we answer things. But as noted, Jesus does not seem to f- think about or care that much about those sort of answers. And if anything, you'd be like, Jesus, what is grace? He would be like, let me tell you a story. And that's how he functions. And it's interesting because he does this a lot. And and even Matthew's like, he just was teaching parables all the time. That at some point, like if you were to pick up like the systematic theology and systematic writers write 10 volumes of unpacking God or something like that. I feel like if I were to pick up Jesus's systematic theology, it would be like a single volume full of short stories. Because that's often how he would, would take the moment to explain things, to explain how these giant questions that the text will actually say, these giant mysteries, these giant things about who God is, what his kingdom is about, what he's like, he moves to stories more than anything else. So I want to talk about the purpose and problems of parables to begin with. Because he says, when the disciples came, they asked, why do you speak like this? He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the, or the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, the one who, and he will have to abundance. The one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which the prophecy of Isaiah was also fulfilled when Isaiah spoke these things to the Israelites. So once again, how we think about prophecy, we, we sometimes need to reframe a little bit. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see and never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand, um, understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So they asked Jesus, sorry, why do you teach this way? And Jesus is simply like, I teach them in parables because they're not going to get it. Cool, Jesus. That's really helpful um, for him to say something like that, right? So the question is like, Jesus, are you intentionally making things difficult to understand? Are they meant to be more complicated than they are? And and Matthew will, or Jesus will continue to say things. Matthew will record them. And by verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, which is fascinating because it's a psalmist, it's a poet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So these things that are sometimes hidden or mysteries, uh, which is really the, the, the idea that, that God is helping to, to, to unpack, to reveal, to, to make these truths more clear or more out there, that, that Jesus is doing that, teaching these big things of like, what is the kingdom? Through stories and parables. 
And it's even more interesting, Psalm 78, which he's actually quoting there to talk about these mysteries revealed through parable, is not a parable at all. It's actually like a very straightforward chapter that's all about Israel's history. Like those are the, those are the massive things that God has unpacked for his people. And it's as if Jesus was saying, like, these really important moments of, of these huge questions, I'm going to give you some parables for. And he quotes Isaiah 6 as well in that previous section, which is fascinating as well because uh, you have the beginning of Isaiah. You have Isaiah, this prophet who ends up being called by God. God sort of shows up, and it's this amazing scene. And, and Isaiah, is, it's like missions 101. Here am I. I'm ready to go. And then God's like, here's the deal. No one's going to listen to you. You're going to go. So most people are all, like, even people that go to the missions fields, they're like, yeah. Like, Rory and I were just talking about this. Yeah, I'm ready to go. And then when you stop reading because you don't want to hear, and you're not going to be very fruitful in your ministry. <coughs> but, but God sends Isaiah and says, look, people aren't going to listen to you. Now, here's the deal. Do people listen to Isaiah? Some, right? So not all ears were clear. And it even said so that... Um, because some would, would turn and, and be healed. There, there would be a remnant always. And, and even Isaiah speaks about that remnant. And that same language is picked up by other prophets like Jeremiah who are like, their eyes are closed. But it's this warning because some will actually respond and go, oh, like I need to listen to Jeremiah. I need to listen to Isaiah. Yes, we have been wrong or we have been doing these things. And they, and they hear and they turn almost like this powerful language used in a very particular way. Kyle Snodgrass on this says, the words of Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 are to be understood not literally, but forcefully. They express by hyperbole what has already happened due to hardness of heart and unwillingness to hear. They function as irony, as provocation to bring about hearing and obedience. Jesus' use of the quotation and his parable on it have both, uh, both have the one same function. And so there's, there's a uniqueness of, of how Jesus is speaking here with that Isaiah imagery. It's also really important to note that in Hebrew and Aramaic, and the same is actually true of the Greek word, that the word to hear, so those that have ears will hear, the same word, the exact same word, is the same word to obey. So uh, when it says the Shema, which is this famous Jewish prayer, it says, uh, hero of Israel, it's the same word that is actually to hear and obey, like take these words in and, and live them out is actually sort of the idea in hearing. Like, will, will they be the people who hear, who, who listen, who, who actually heed what is actually being said? It's this multi-meaning. So it's not just about the definition, it's bigger than that. Kenneth Bailey says parables do more than explain meaning. They create meaning for the listeners. And, and what they mean by that is that um, sometimes we like to function, particularly in sort of our, our more Western context, with we, we really love these like big terms. Like we want the conveyor belt of theology to be like omnipresent. Let me take that off. Let's examine omnipresent. It's a big concept. Let's put it back on a conveyor belt and move. What the parables do, I would argue, actually invites us into something else. It's almost like it invites us into the house of, of, of being with Jesus, seeing how what he's saying. It's like we have different windows we get to look out of. To, and, and hear me, I'm not a postmodernist to say that we can interpret parables however we want. I do think there's sort of central meanings. But there's a lot of things that we can see and perceive in that same thing, in that same teaching. 
And at some point, I want to ask Jesus, okay, like, why take such a risk? Why, why, why teach in such a way that people can misunderstand or abuse your teaching or take it and run with it in all sorts of weird ways? But I want to counter that with a little bit of, first off, very concrete things can be taken really poorly as well, right? If I were to say God is omnipotent, we might have a lot of different understandings of what that actually means. Like even concrete words and, and things like that can, can be all different ways. Or, or if I were to say God is a trinity, well, suddenly we get like, you hear people try to explain that and like you just move to heresy really quickly. Um, like trinity, trinitarianism is complicated. And I see people with like charts and graphs and it's like here's three circles and there's like lines between each of them and what they do. And, and cool, like at some point that's great. But that doesn't move my heart. Like, sometimes that concrete, really boxed-in theological teaching is not about heart or soul or what, what actually moves, because a story has power, has a unique power that other things don't have. For example, Jesus, Jesus and Peter always have these wonderful interactions, because Peter just says a lot of things. And so Peter's comes to him once. He's like, so how, how, much, how, much for, how much do I have to forgive somebody, right? Like, seven, seven, is seven enough, Jesus? Does that work? And then Jesus is like, let me tell you a story, Peter. And, and he moves into a story. It's like there's a king, and there was this one guy who owed the king, like, a bazillion dollars. Like, the, the, the language there is just, like, hyperbole. It's like, he's got Elon Musk money, and he owes it to the king. And the king decides to forgive the guy, wonderful. But then the guy turns around and turns to like somebody else who owes him money and just a little bit of money. And the guy's a total jerk to him. And it's like unforgiving. Like, and, and he's, what, what Jesus has done to Peter is, is move into story. Because if Peter, if, if Jesus, who's perceiving G Peter's heart here, I think Peter's coming in being like, I don't really want to forgive. What's like the limit? How far do I really need to go with this? And Jesus is like, hmm. It's as if he sees something with him and moves to a story. Because if Peter's just like, or if Jesus is just like, Peter, you're just being an unforgiving jerk. How receptive would Peter be in that moment? Because if Peter's like me, it'd be like, yeah, you don't understand Jesus, or I, I would self-defend, I would, I would push off, I would do all sorts of different things. But for, for Jesus to be like, let me tell you a story. You, you need to gain a different perspective on what is true and what is real. And we see this, I mean, we see this in the Old Testament. Like, Nathan needs to confront David. David has committed this atrocity with Bathsheba and Uriah. Nathan the prophet like, knows about it. And Nathan comes to David. And he doesn't come in hot. He's sort of like, David, I need to tell you a story about this poor man and this rich man in, in the kingdom. And, and confronts David through story. And he's eventually like, David, you're the, you're the bad guy in the story. Um, now, if he came in hot... It's like, David, you've done this atrocity, you're the worst, all this kind of stuff. If, once again, if David's like me, it would have been like, no, you're, or Nathan, I need to find a way to kill you too. Um, whatever it may be, but he doesn't do that. And it actually invites David in to, to perceive and to understand more than, than it's there. It's, it, it's as if parables take a situation and actually load it with a lot of potential. So it's a rebuke, and it's an encouragement, and it's an invitation, and it's a way to reframe. And the listener of the parable actually can consider all of these pieces of the larger story. 
Eugene Peterson talks about it this way. He says, it keeps the message at a distance, which for many of us, particularly, once again, in sort of like a Western rational post-enlightenment way, we don't want to keep story. We want to get it in, give me the understanding, and let's move on. That's why, like, sometimes my preaching, especially over the last year and a half, will drive some of you crazy. Because you're like, Chris, just give me the answer. <laughs> I'm like, gray areas are wonderful. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I get it. I, I, sometimes I do want the answer, too. Just give me, Jesus, what do you actually want out of this? But it keeps the message at a distance. It slows down comprehension, blocks automatic prejudicial reactions, it dismantles stereotypes. A parable comes up to the listener obliquely on the slant. Uh, and Peterson's talking about the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan story. He says, the Samaritan listens unsuspecting. And then, without warning, without a word being used, God. He quotes John Donovan Cross, and he says that uh, the parable is an earthquake opening up the ground at your feet. And it leaves, actually, the power of the story with the interpreters. Outside of, like, this story and a little bit of the next, like, Jesus doesn't take the time to actually, like, dot every I and, cro- dot every I and cross every T. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't work to make sure that everybody, like, understands every nuance of the story. He actually leaves a lot of it in the hands of the listeners to go, what do you think? What do you understand out of what I just told you? And it's open to misunderstanding. It's open to different perspectives. Jesus doesn't seem concerned about it. He sort of leaves it there for the listener. But he does say to his disciples, bless are your eyes. They see in your ears, they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So there's something about his followers, people that have been walking with him, they seize in them. People that have been willing to walk and journey with Jesus, who have been close to Jesus, who have been sitting at his feet and listening and in his presence and taking his teaching and wondering about it, wondering about it, thinking about it, probably having these wonderful, I would imagine this Jesus, walk, Jesus teaching a story, moving on, and the disciples walking behind him being like, what, I didn't understand that. What, what did you guys think about that? What do you think Jesus was talking about? When he said this thing about fish, what do you, what do you think? And having these moments and being invited in, even corporately as a community, to wrestle and to, and, to, and to do those sort of things. And I think he's turning to his disciples to be like, you guys, you guys get it. You guys are participating in the very thing that I want my people to do, which is be near me, to wrestle with my teachings, to think about them, to ponder them, to, to take my word and soak it in. And he invites his people to do that. So with all that, knowing that parables are meant to be left to the hearers without everything cleared up and tied up in a bow, um, I admit there's a certain irony that now I have to teach on the parables, right? I have to stand up here and go, here's what the parables mean after Jesus goes, I teach them because not everybody's going to understand this and it's going to confuse people. And that was his goal, but my goal is somehow the opposite of Jesus's, which is problematic. Um, but I do, want to, I do want to give you two parables of what that's like for me, okay? So here's the first. Teaching a parable is like a comedian who booked a regular paying gig, and every Sunday night he stepped on stage and took the mic and commenced his act, which consisted entirely of explaining other people's jokes. The crowd left the club every week in contented silence, understanding why the jokes were funny, but unable to actually laugh at them. Or teaching a parable may be compared to a man who loved a swallow, who made its nest in his backyard, and the bird watcher just um, was sit for hours, admiring the gliding and the unpredictable flight patterns. 
he told his friends, I have the most amazing thing for you all to see. And he invited them over on Sunday. And once they arrived, he gently caught the swallow. And they watched as he began to open it with a scalpel. They took careful notes as they pointed out how the skeletal and the muscular systems worked to, to create such a beautiful motion. And when the man was done, he, the swallow twitched as he tossed it in the grave prepared beforehand, and each guest tossed on a shovel full of dirt as they returned to their homes. That's, that's what I get to do today, right? There's a little bit of taking, taking the beautiful swallow of some of these parables and what the parables are meant to sort of leave us in and also just take a scalpel and take it apart. And so there's some tension there. And as we walk through these parables, I, I got to walk in that tension too of how much do I explain, how much do I not explain, how much is just my perception, how much is open-ended for all of us to participate in interpreting. But here's a little bit of good news, of part of my job. We are also 2,000 years removed from these stories. There's things that his audience would definitely hear in their teaching that we would not hear. There's definitely analogies or language that are used in his stories that we would not. And so I can at least walk us through some of that um, and try my best effort sometimes to be like, I think this is what Jesus is after. But hear me. If you walk away from here and you're like, I don't know. And let's talk about that in life group this week with the, with the community and say, I, I actually noticed this in the parable. Awesome. That's exactly what I think parables are meant to do. Not for all of us to go, here, here's, the, here's the answer. Okay? So now that we're ready, let's do it. And my question, and I think, I think the question that Jesus is after, is, how's your soil? Because um, he says, the same day Jesus went out of the house, he ends up on this boat, <clears throat> which, um, if you're driving along the Sea of Galilee, it's, there's a literal place for it. We actually drove right by it when we were there. Um, and uh, it's this, like, curved out little cove. Now, hear me, I, I don't know if that's actually the place. It's just where church history has led us. Um, but it is this wonderful little amphitheater that if you were on a boat, it is like perfect in terms of uh, acoustics. And so maybe Jesus was there, maybe he wasn't. But uh, it would have actually made plenty of sense acoustically for that to be sort of a stage and for his crowd to be in front of him. The sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they... Uh, did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell amongst thorns. Thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell among good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Uh, and the Greek is probably less passive than that. I actually think the net does a good job with this. He says, the one who has ears had better listen and follow, which is probably a, a stronger use there. Now, if you've heard a typical explanation of this parable, what, what have you heard? Like, what has been sort of like, here's, how, here's what the parable is about? Anybody? Right. Yeah. Discipleship. I've heard a lot about evangelism, probably, with this one. That our job is to go and spread the seed everywhere. And some people are going to hear it and accept Jesus. Some aren't. They're going to reject it. Some people are going to be excited about it, but they're going to move on. All those sort of things. And hear me. Great. I don't think it's wrong. I think it's totally there if, if that's where you want to go. But there's also a sort of part of that interpretation where you're like, no duh, right? Like, 
That's true of just about anything people get excited about. Like if I find an awesome TED Talk and I sent it to 50 of my friends, there'll be some of you who are like, that was the most amazing thing. And they sent it on to their friends and they started sending it on to their friends. And, and that would move. There's also some of you that'd be like, oh yeah, that was really cool. And you were excited about it for like the moment you watched it. And then a week later, you're like, I don't really remember what that was about. And there's some of you who are like, that's stupid. Like, why did you even send me that? Right? And we all, and we all have those different responses. And there's something... So yes, if that's the application, that's fine. It's very obvious. And Jesus had even already warned his disciples, hey, you're going to go to different towns, and some people are going to accept your message, and some people aren't. So he's already actually warned them that that's going to take place. I'm not sure if that's all that we're supposed to understand out of the story as well. But it's also helpful to know, and this is where I get paid the big bucks, um, that there's, there's there's a pretty common rabbinic template uh, that Jesus is actually employing. Uh, that goes all the way back. It's in the Mishnah. It's in, it's in other really old texts. And, and in it, it's this fourfold learner. Um, almost all of them are about learning or, or disciples. What does it look like to be a, a good disciple? And, and so like uh, a vote 515 says this. There's four, t- four types amongst those who sit at, before the sages or the, the, the rabbis. Uh, there's a sponge, a funnel, a strainer, and a sieve. A sponge soaks everything up. So it's a learner who takes in everything indiscriminately. There's a funnel who takes it in one end and lets out the other end, so they learn it, but they don't retain any of it. Uh, there's, a, there's a strainer, uh, which lets out the wine and retains the lease. So they, they take it in, but for whatever reason, they only keep like the bad teachings. They really struggle to keep the good teachings. Um, and then there's a sieve who lets out the coarse meal and retains the choice flour. Sometimes we say they, they eat the meat and spit out the bones, right? They take in what's good, and they, and they, they are willing to not absorb what is bad. And, so, and the fourth one is always like the point. Like, this is who you should be at the end of the story. And there's various versions of this. Sometimes it's like the learner and the doer. So the quick learner, slow doer, slow learner, quick doer, all those kind of things. And there, hear me, it's an old rabbinic template. Jesus is utilizing what they would have known. And, and the point of almost every single one of them is actually around the question of what kind of learner are you? Are you? Who are you in the story? What, what kind of learner, um, how, how do you be a disciple? And so if that's the case, and, and that's the paradigm that Jesus is utilizing, the question, I think, is, is what, well, what soil are you in this story? And, and even better, Jesus gives us a cheat sheet, as, as Chris said. Like, this is one of the one times that Jesus goes out of his way to go, let me explain it to you. Though I'm not sure he totally explains all the beautiful pieces of it, but he's like, let me explain at least the, the surface level of this. He says, here, then the parable of the sower, when everyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, the evil one comes um, and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in him, for, uh, but endures for a while, and then tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. As for what was sown amongst the thorn, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another case sixty, in another thirty. And I... No, never mind. I'm going to get myself in trouble if I go down that path. So, there's four swords. There's the path, right? Now, if you're in a wonderful agrarian society, you have a field. Most of your paths are around the perimeter, or you should have a few paths through a field. And that path is like compacted dirt, right? Um, It's walked on. 
It's where seed is not going to take any root, which is why the birds come and take it and, and do stuff with it. It's not taking any root at all. It's just remaining on the surface. And, and, and so he has a simple, a simple explanation for that, that um, he's like, there's, there's some who are just hard surfaces, that, that, the, that the seed never really ever sets in for whatever reasons, for, for whatever experiences they have in life, which we'll cover in a second. Then there's rocks, and these rocks tend to be um, in fields along edges or uh, sometimes are placed where uh, the limestone is actually quite close to the surface. It's not really deep, um, so uh, sometimes they're barrier areas. You're not going to grow most things there. Uh, they're not going to take root very deeply. And, and so, um, and, and so when, when hardships come, when, when hard seasons, when the sun comes to scorch, there's, there's nothing really deep that's going to last. There's, nothing, there's no deep roots uh, through dry seasons. And then the thorns, it's really straightforward. They're those who are sort of choked out around idolatry, particularly around things like wealth and sort of the, the things sometimes of this world. So wealth, comfort, power, things like that, that, that can all sort of eat away at our pursuit, our time, our drawing into the Lord. And in good soil, those ones who take in the word, who digest it, who understand it, who let it really take root, who do it as hearers once again. And, and there's a production of a crop out of it. So great. It's really not that abstract, that complicated. So while we're there, I just want to ask some questions for us to just ponder, to, to consider. So maybe, maybe we are the people on the path. And do we tend do we tend to forget the lessons from the Bible and fail to really retain much of what we've learned at years maybe following Jesus? It's like, yeah, like the Ten Commandments somewhere in the Bible, I don't know where it is, right? And, and it's not a condemnation. Hear me, I, I wrapped up with this, but I want to say it now. The sower is an important part of the story too. And the sower throws seed everywhere. He's not like, only on the good soil am I going to bless with my word and with my, my blessing. He is wasteful and extravagant. Dare I say reckless? Though I don't want to you know, emails about that. Reckless about where he spreads the seed, right? It's like, here's a hard path. Here's some rocks. I'm going to throw seed there anyways. Because God is generous. And so, don't, don't take it as, oh, like this condemnation. Jesus is provoking but inviting in in a lot of what he's doing. Am I intentional about keeping my heart open or do I get hardened really easily by negative influences? Do I, do I come in like just already with my guards up with, with my heart just like already in a place where I'm like, I, I just don't want to listen to this right now. When faced with the truth of Scripture, am I resistant to change? When, when I do get provoked or confronted, am I like, nah, I'm good. Status quo is good for me. Or am I willing to let it do some work? Is my heart soft or receptive? What about the rocks? Am I too quick to get excited about God's word, but sometimes lose interest when things actually get tough? It's like January 1st rolls around. I got a new reading plan. I'm going to do my thing. This is going to be awesome. It's going to be a year I read the Bible in a year. And you get to numbers and you're done. <laughs> right? Like, there's, there's just, there's a lot of excitement. But excitement 
And finishing the marathon that is life with Jesus is not the same thing. Do I consistently nurture my spiritual life through prayer and study, fellowship, or, or do I rely on the emotional highs? <clears throat> Those amazing moments, the conferences that just stir my heart, or just, man, I, I haven't heard a good sermon in a long time. I just need that. And if you're here, you probably haven't heard a good sermon in a long time. Um, <clears throat> am I willing to make changes in my life to put God's kingdom first? Am I willing to, to do... Oh, oh, wait, I jumped ahead. Um, is my commitment to God's word deep and lasting? Or when tough times come along, it just becomes light? And do I seek like the spiritual depths? Am I willing to, to walk with people in community and go, what, what, what is God? Who is God? What is he like? Let's open his word. Let's spend time just with God, letting the spirit do some work, and, and let's study together. Or the thorns, what everyday worries and concerns compete for my attention alongside God's word? How much am I scrolling versus how much am I spending time with him in his word? Am I willing to make changes in my life to put God's kingdom first? Do I really struggle with the balance of material goals with spiritual priorities? I got this retirement goal, but man, there's some needs and I can meet those and be generous right now. Do I easily get caught up in the worries of life? Is so much of my circumstances dictating my emotional highs and lows? Like, something I admire so much in Sarah is like the maturity that she's at now in her walk. And she's probably not liking me highlighting this, but like her life can be a roller coaster of circumstances. But because of her walk with Jesus, like she's here. And there's, there's, there's some movement within that. But there's, there's a stability that comes with that. And I think that's what Jesus is inviting his people into. It's like, are, are you going to be the thorns and thistles where the circumstances just pull you away? Are you going to sit here, even when the circumstances are wild? Or the good soil? How open am I to God's word? Actively seeking to, to live it out? Am I cultivating that? Am I tilling the soil so that as God speaks to me, as the Holy Spirit does some work, I'm, I'm ready for it? And that's, I think, the invitation on the table. What does our soil look like? Now, it's also the question, how do we, how do we get there? How do we till our soil and I think there's some layers to that. Um, part, of a, part of a Jewish um, sort of hermeneutic practice, uh, which is uh, it's big theological words, is really like, how do I interpret this? What, what are the tools I bring to the table as I encounter parables? Um, and I'm actually probably going to leave you a little bit with this. I'm going to skip part of this. Um, is one of the things that was probably more common for rabbinic practices is, is to have a teaching. And, and hear me. The base level of reading, just interpretation without all, any tools, is good and true and right. There's nothing wrong with that. But one of the things they would do, I would argue, a lot of rabbis would, would sort of bury sort of treasures for us to, to find. Not like hidden secret things, but um, for us in a modern day who have Bible Gateway, we have all the tools we could possibly want. Like ancient people who had to memorize all of this would be like, are you kidding me? Like you have, you can look up a word and find out every spot in the Bible where that word exists. Yes, it's wonderful. Um, it doesn't require you to be an expert at Greek and Hebrew. It requires you to have the internet, which hopefully most of us have. And so 
um, for, you, for you to be able to go, okay, he said something about like hard ground. Well, where else in the Old Testament does hard ground exist? What did God say about hard soil? What did God say about planting amongst thorns and thistles? And here's the deal. I'm going to go full rabbi, second service here. Go find it. I'll give you a hint. It's probably in Jeremiah. But go find it. (laughs) Isaiah, he's got images that Jesus tackles when he starts getting this explanation. And, And... I don't remember who asked it, but I, but I think Jesus is doing some more parable work as he explains to be like, I'm going to mention these things. Hey, I'm going to mention a hundredfold first, which no one asked a question about. But even in ancient days, you, you did the no, smaller numbers before you got the bigger numbers, 30, 60, 100, right? We still do that today. Jesus goes a hundredfold or 60 or 30. And in Luke, it just says a hundredfold. He doesn't even get to the 60 and 30. Okay, where does a hundredfold exist in scripture? How to give you a hint? It only exists one time. Okay. Now, the next step is to, is to sometimes see that, and we're going to encounter that a ton in these parables, to see that and then go, why would Jesus bring that up? Like, is that actually a connection and why? What is that story about that might have to do with what actually Jesus is trying to convey to his audience? It's really important. So, go do some homework. Go talk amongst yourselves. Um, that is a very old Saturday Night Live reference. Uh, but yes, and it's the invitation in for his people to, to, to actually press in, to, to not just Jesus himself, but his word, to be the people who go, huh, I, I, need, to, I need to do a little more digging. I need to spend a little more time meditating, Hagal, meditate on the word. I need to think about this a little bit more. And even better to do it with other people that are something too communal processing of these important truths that we are meant to see in the parables, I think are truly meant to be done in community. And so the question is, how's your soil? And what is Jesus inviting you into if you're like, ah, maybe I am like the people in thorns and thistles, okay? What did Jesus say about thorns and thistles? Go, go, go do the work. Because I think that's what he's commending in his disciples, you are the ones who are willing to do this. You are the good soil who are willing to walk with me, to be present with me, to ask the things of the kingdom, to make priorities around these things. And you don't understand all of them all the time, but you're willing to be here at my feet and listen to be taught and be prepared for that. And so we're invited into the same thing. As I said, you don't need a seminary degree, ancient languages. You just need to go to move towards Jesus, to take these things that he has invited us into, the house that he's invited us to enter, and wrestle with them. So over the next few weeks, guess what? I may not have a lot of answers. And it may be more an invitation in to go, huh. And if it leaves you there and you go home and do some homework, awesome. Awesome. And we spend more time here more time with him, I think we are doing all that the parables are inviting us to actually do. So I'm going to invite Sarah up as we sort of move into a time to just reflect, which I think is a key goal of the parables, on what Jesus has said, for us to think about them, to chew on it a little bit more, uh, and then we'll move into communion and prayer.